Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding in Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And I'm really excited today that our guest is Risa Garin. She's a licensed clinical social worker, board-certified diplomat, and certified family life educator. She's the executive director and co-founder of the National Family Resilience Center, Inc., and she and her staff have developed a child-focused decision-making model that parents and professionals use to make decisions about the best interests of children to build a trusting and constructive co-parenting relationship. Welcome, Risa Garen. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, and thank you for your invitation to speak. You know, my experiences, and I've been doing this work for over 30 years, is that people always say, and they think they really intend to put the best interest of the children first, and that's really challenging to do. Do you think that's true? I think it's very true, and I think what I see in my work, my clinical and educational work with parents, is that they mean well, they want to make the best decisions, but while they're going through their own grief process, which involves just a tumultuous range of emotions, it's really hard to put their own emotions aside and then focus on the needs of their children. Secondly, many of us, I'm a parent myself, we don't have formal training to become parents. And so during a stressful time, such as a time of divorce, it makes it even more difficult to focus on your children. Yeah, I think think it's one's own feelings are really distracting and it's confusing. The difference between what I'm feeling as a parent and what I imagine is going on for my children, I think trying to tease those things apart on your own is really hard to do. Do you think that's true? I think it's very true, and I've devoted a lot of my career to educating decision makers such as mental health professionals, parents, attorneys, judges, to try to better understand the grief process and also how to attend and define the best interests of the children. And the best way our center has found was to develop educational programs that are now mandated in the state of Maryland and I believe across the country. I know New York has them as well, where parents, this is intended to help parents, where they learn about the grief process. They learn communication skills with each other and with their children. They learn more about children's developmental needs and how to make decisions about time that are based on those needs, not necessarily what they as parents want. Yeah, I think that's really, really crucially important. And Risa Garen, tell us about the child-focused decision-making model. What is that and how does it work? Well, thank you for asking. The child and family-focused decision-making model has four different components to it. The foundation is child development because regardless of age, ethnicity, country, children go through a sequential stage of development. Often when I talk to parents, it's like taking a ball of yarn and unfolding it. And if you address the needs of children appropriately, they can go on to the next stage. 
and divorce doesn't have to define a child's development. It can be incorporated into it. So the first stage is child development, and we look at important aspects of development, and we teach parents and other professionals these aspects, self-concept, intellectual development, educational growth and development, safety and security, meaning children being physically taken care of and feeling psychologically secure. And then we take each of those aspects of development, and the second part becomes what is the possible impact of a family transition, such as a separation or divorce? And that could be children, young children, older children often blame themselves for divorce because they equate they're not putting away their toys with hearing parents arguing and being concrete. They may think, well, if only I had been a better child and put my toys away, this wouldn't have happened. Intellectually, many children's needs are often go unaddressed, especially the higher the conflict, the more difficult it is to assess the learning challenges that children have. Many children suffer from ADD. They're not tested and treated because parents are fighting, so their educational growth and development is impacted. Interpersonally, um, we need to look at what kind of model of a loving relationship do parents demonstrate to their children, what kinds of civil communication exists between parents and between parents and children, how are children allowed to go on with their social development when they're with one parent who may say to an eight-year-old, it's my time, so you're not going to Sally's birthday party today, when we know for that child it's very normal and healthy to want to interact with friends and classmates. And when yeah, we I wanted to kids, interrupt you there one second because, you know, I had a, a client once upon a time whose child said to them, listen, it's not your weekend or daddy's weekend, it's my weekend. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that. That's perfect. And, and I think that's exactly what you're talking about, where you, where the child sort of becomes an object in the, in the game, in the gamesmanship of who has what time and who gets what opportunities when really it's the kid's life, for goodness sake. And you don't have to, but it, you're, you're going to have happier, healthier children if you can think of it that way. Is that, is that what you're saying, I think? I'm, I'm saying exactly that. And the same applies to the last part of their psychological and physical well-being. The third part of our model is parenting responsibilities. And this, to me, is the answer for so many parents and so many decision-makers, such as judges and magistrates. If you know what children need, and we can define behaviorally what parents can do to meet those needs, we don't need to litigate. We don't need to keep the conflict going. We need to define how each parent, if a child is fortunate to have two parents involved, what can each parent do to lovingly and responsibly parent their children? And then the last part of this child and family-focused model is addressing high conflict. So that, as you just said, I love the way this child put it, it's my weekend, it's not your weekend, and what can we do to be very specific with high-conflict parents so that there is some additional accountability so that the children's needs can be met. How do you deal with that high-conflict between people? Because this is certainly not always the case, but I think there does become sort of a competition for some families as they go through a divorce and even post-divorce. 
between parents as to who's the better parent, who has more time, who has more influence, who has a closer relationship. And when you have high conflict, I mean, that is just so toxic for children caught in the middle of that. What can we as professionals do or parents do to sort of help people who tend to be high conflict types lower that conflict and, and cooperate more around their kids? Well, I appreciate your question. I think it's excellent, and I think we need to spend more time on that question because I I think that parents in high conflict want to begin with in the state of Maryland. We're looking more at an interdisciplinary approach from the very beginning before parents file in court or soon after, that there be a team of professionals to assess is there a degree of personality disorder or mental illness or substance abuse that, that is energizing the high conflict? And then how can we educate parents to reduce the conflict and have some degree of accountability? There are some judges that we fortunately work with will say to parents, I'm going to stay this case and you need to do some counseling and you need to do some co-parent work in order to be able to learn to communicate with each other. We do a lot of that work at our center, and if there's something that I can suggest is that parents learn to put aside their adult relationship. I often say wrap it up in a paper bag and put a rubber band around it and bring out some pictures of your children and show us and tell us about your children. Often you begin to see that parents soften, and when they talk about their children and you see their love, you can begin to tie in some of the strengths they share some of the common views and beliefs they have. And then there's a process. And I think that's part of the the difficulty between court and parents that they are making major decisions at a time they may not be ready, so they go to battle. And when parents learn how to hear each other, listen to each other, and then have professionals like myself and others who are child development educated, we have the answers. I can hear one parent and listen to the other parent and think, well, you know what? Each of them really makes sense, but let's look at who are the children involved? What do they need? What are their challenges? And that's where I find my answers. New York has some really wonderful programs for professionals, and even what you're doing I think is fantastic because it's educating the public, including professionals, and I think it's mental health professionals and judicial officers and attorneys and mediators can be better trained and understand child development, I think that can reduce a lot of the conflict and address the best interests of children. I think what you're saying is that we can we can help resolve work towards resolution and calming things down rather than fanning the flames of their conflict. Exactly. And I have found, Catherine, all it takes is one parent and or one professional to do that. And mental health professionals are are part of that also. It just takes, let's say, one mental health professional who didn't contact the co-parent and the co-parent never knew the child was in therapy, or one litigator who wants to litigate and the parents really want to resolve their issues and are capable of doing it. So, yes, I totally agree with what you're saying. I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WBOX 1460 AM alternate Wednesdays from 5 to 5.30, and we're also available as a podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and wherever you listen to podcasts. 
and we're also available on the podcast website from divorcedialogues.com. And I'm talking today with Lisa Guerin about uh, resiliency for children facing divorce. And Risa, we have the holidays coming up, right? and that's a very typically stressful time for families, period, and I think particularly for divorcing and divorced families. Do you have any suggestions or hints for people who are dealing with this, for parents who are dealing with the holidays and their children in order to minimize the stress of that and maximize the enjoyment both for the parents and especially for the children? I think that's a very important question, how parents can help um, their children through the holiday period, especially with COVID. I have a few suggestions. The first one is don't be afraid to let your children grieve about the former holidays and how they spent them. I think parents are afraid that their children won't be happy during the holidays, and they may not be. Accept your children's emotions where they are, and as you mentioned previously, Catherine, parents' feelings may be at a different point than their children. Their children may still be grieving. Parents may be ready to go on and be happy or vice versa. I also think incorporating some old traditions with new traditions. Sometimes it helps a lot for parents to pull out some photos and talk about previous holidays and how they celebrated them. But equally as important, another suggestion is to have parents and kids plan their holidays together. And, you know, how do they want it to be? What's something new that we never did? And you don't have to have a million dollars to spend on expensive gifts. It's the concept of we are a family. Maybe we can make paper decorations. Maybe we can paint some decorations. Can we bake some cookies for our neighbors down the street? What can we do to share happiness together? Can we watch some movies together? For co-parents, especially early in the divorce process, I strongly suggest if parents can be civil and it's not too painful for them to celebrate a tradition the way they used to. The most typical one is Christmas morning, both parents being there when the children wake up. I do a lot of co-parent work and, and parents are willing to do that. We set very strict rules and strict times. We're not talking about all day, maybe an hour, maybe with a cup of hot chocolate. It's especially important now with COVID times where we can't have a million people over. So that helps the children feel happy and that they feel they still have a sense of family. Another suggestion that I have is please be careful about significant others. I have a simple rule that I try to go over with parents. I let them know that, you know, they are entitled to have new relationships and that's none of my business but it is my business in terms of working with their children, how their children feel. So if children are ready, that's great. Have parents been respectful to their co-parent and inform them that there's a significant other. Are children ready to meet and celebrate with that significant other? Often children say to me, I came first before that person, and I just want to share this holiday with my mother or father. And I believe that in the long run, If parents can respect where their children are at, their children will be more respectful of their parents having a new relationship. I think that's all really, really excellent advice. And I think that the celebrating together, I think sometimes people think that that's either something to be achieved or sometimes people think that's confusing for the children. Do you ever worry about that? 
I think, um, yeah, sometimes I do, and that's a really important point. If most children hope that their parents will get back together again, especially the younger children. The older children are often relieved because they've been exposed to a lot of fighting and conflict. So the children who don't quite understand what divorce is might be too confused to have both parents together. Sometimes children who are younger are able to understand feelings, and I suggest that parents explain that since this might be the first holiday or the second, this is what we're going to do, but mom and dad are not going to be together. We're still a family. We have two separate homes, but sometimes we can share holidays together, just like your parents go to school conferences together. And I find that most children can enjoy that and understand that. If there's arguing, though, which we've experienced, I used to be very loosey-goosey about holiday plans, and parents would say, oh, Risa, we can handle this ourselves. And then I received a few calls from the police at church with services and parents fighting over the transition times. I've become much stricter in terms of these are the times, this is how it will be, this is when you will leave, and that seems to work well for parents and children. Yeah, so it sounds like what you're saying is real clarity. I mean, if there's a possibility of conflict, and listen, some people you have, I, I think you have a sense, you know, it's going to be okay because they're, they're relaxed with each other pretty much generally, even if they're getting divorced or are divorced. But with many, many couples, the absolute presence of clarity, everyone knows exactly what's going to happen when minimizes the possibility for conflict, and especially around the holidays, that's absolutely crucial. Yes. And just to add to what you're saying, Catherine, another suggestion I have evolves around gifts. If we have a competition and you're spending $4,000 and I'm spending eight, what that does is children get in the middle and they learn how to manipulate and it takes the meaning of the holidays away. I suggest that parents, if they can get along well enough to say we're going to get one gift we're going to chip in and this is the amount and this is the maximum. I think that's really focusing on what's best for the children. It's avoiding competition and each parent can feel good that they contributed and the children feel really good that, you know, that this is from both their parents. I also think it's important for the parents to either get a card or take the if they, children can go into stores with COVID, purchase a little gift for the parents if the children want to for their co-parents. Yeah, I think that's really great. And I also, another thing that you said that I really loved, uh, Risa Guerin, was this idea of creating new traditions, combining the old with the new. Because I think if parents try to recreate the old tradition, there's an emptiness, a hollowness to it, because, of course, it's not the old tradition because the other parent's not there. And and so this idea of creating new holiday traditions, I think is very powerful. So thank you for that. You're welcome. I wanted to remind our listeners that they're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30 and also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'm talking today with Risa Guerin about children and resiliency and divorce. And uh, Risa Guerin, if people wanted to learn more about you or your books, we didn't even get a chance to talk about those yet, or, or anything else, how can they do that? Please feel free to contact me on the number to reach us at is 410-740-9553. 
you can go on to our website, www.nfrchealth.org. Great. That's awesome. So what are some of the, do you have some maybe stories or examples of old versus new traditions that people have successfully implemented over the holidays? I have two stories that are quite touching. One involved, and and this is very pertinent right to COVID, where we can't have a lot of people over, and a family felt kind of isolated. They couldn't be with family or friends for some reason. And um, what they did is for, this was for Thanksgiving, they made tents, and they made them out of sheets, and they painted them, and they made all kinds of designs, and they shared Native American stories, and they made new foods like corn pudding, and they looked up recipes, and the kids and their parents did this together, and they had the greatest time. They took pictures, and this was very, very different, right, from traditional, let's sit around the dining room for a few hours kind of Thanksgiving meal. The other was very, very touching. This was a family that was really struggling financially, and at this particular holiday could not afford holiday gifts, right? So the parent involved with the children did some research with the children on nonprofit organizations in the community, and they developed a new ritual every year. Each child in the family could choose a different organization, and all year long they saved up their pennies to donate to. And this was really touching for me because, to me, it really exemplified, regardless of race, religion, whatever, what holidays are all about, and it was sharing and giving to others. And um, the family still does that. And they were, you know, the children, I'm sure they wish they could have received their favorite toys, but they were really excited about this new ritual they developed together. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I think as parents, I think we under-involve our children in planning. I think we often think we're supposed to deliver the ideal holiday experience When we actually ask them and engage them in creating it, my experience is, and I've got five kids, that that makes them really much more excited about it. There's nothing that you could give them on a platter that's as wonderful for them as something that they helped develop. That's my experience anyway. What do you think? I totally agree with you. I think that we underestimate the capacity of children to have input in a lot of things. Often when I do co-parent work, I get consent from the parents to meet with their children, and I become the voice of the children in terms of what the children can share with me in a non-threatening way about what they need in their lives with each parent. And it's really touching, and, and based on what you just said, Catherine, it's comical sometimes when I meet with, let's say you have five children, five children from the same family, The older siblings will say to me, Risa, you don't have to listen to my five-year-old sister because she doesn't know what she's talking about. (laughs) It's often that five-year-old who is unabashedly not shy and is going to disclose what really is the bottom of what makes this family function and is very, very helpful in being a voice to the parents. Yeah. So I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, that's really wonderful. You know, one of the really, I think, heartbreaking parts of divorce is that as a parent, you can't be with your child for every holiday. And I think that 
parents feel really bereft when it's the other parent's turn. And do you have any advice for that parent during the times he or she is without their children in order to help them feel less sad, less depressed and and maybe not so demanding on the kids like oh well you you know is it as good at daddy's as it is at my house or you know something like that right right and I understand what you're saying because a lot of parents we work with feel that way understandably so I think we all have a picture sometimes that the grass is greener on the other side and in the women's group I facilitated one of the women brought that up and said You know, I read a story about how everything was perfect, perfect china, perfect dining room table, everything set up, but no one was talking to each other. And so I asked parents to look at what do they have, what can they appreciate, so that they're not looking at the other side and comparing. I also believe that it's okay for parents, too, to grieve and to acknowledge this is different, it's that it hurts for a certain period of time, and then say, okay, what do you want to do? So some rituals that men and women have taught me, one is they do things they never did before. They order in Chinese takeout, they sit in their bed, they watch Netflix movies, and they do things that they've never done before and they have a good time. Or they connect with friends they may be close to, Um, they may assert themselves and say, and I believe it's really okay to do this to Sam really hurting. I'm kind of sad because my children are with their other parents. Can I join you? Or can we go for a walk in the morning? Can we go for a run? I think it's taking responsibility for, you know, for one's own happiness and trying to find new rituals for adults as well. Yeah, I think that's really important. I really try to help people find new things to do. Don't just sit home and mourn. Do something, you know, treat yourself, do something that is going to make you feel like this is a special time for you, too. So, Risa Garen, thank you on uh, Divorce Day. Like, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Very nice to meet you and, and participate. Thank you.